The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome everyone. It's nice to see everybody tonight. So uh, people who've been around know that I've given a few talks about the basics of mindfulness. And tonight I'm going to begin in, begin a series of talks, and it's going to be based uh, to some degree on this book by Ajahn Sumedho, one of the better-known American monks. He actually is an abbot of a monastery in England, but he's an American who studied in Thailand for a number of years and then uh, was asked to go open some monasteries in England. He's been there for the last 20 years or so, maybe 30 years now. And this book is called The Mind and the Way. So it's going to take me many months to sort of work my way through the book and share some of Ajahn Sumedho's thoughts. And it's just a nice overview of Dharma practice, Buddhist mindfulness practice. And so I thought I'd use it as a, a framework or structure for some talks for several months. So it gives people a chance, if you want more background, you can read along with me in this book. Um, you can order it, of course, at any of the bookstores or online at Amazon, one of those online services, if you'd like. It's a really nice book. And it's just an interesting title, The Mind and the Way, Buddhist Reflections on Life. But just to consider that title, The Mind and the Way, says a lot about this practice that we do, Buddhist mindfulness practice or awareness practice. The way, the spiritual path, is related a lot to the mind. And it's helpful to remember that. I mean, even though in spiritual life, in Buddhist practice, or almost any religious tradition, there's a real emphasis on action, you know, with living with kindness, living with generosity, being patient, not harming others. But... In Buddhist practice especially, there's uh, the, the most important emphasis is on understanding the mind. We work with our behavior first to settle our life down so we can look better at the mind. And then the more we begin to work with the mind, the easier it gets to settle our life down, to start to live in harmony, to not harm others. So the real change comes, however, from understanding the mind. And one of the most famous of the Buddhist passages in the Dhammapada, he talks about this in a very direct way. You've probably, or many of you have heard this before. All experience is preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind. Speak or act with a corrupted mind and suffering follows as the wagon wheel follows the hoof of the ox. All experience is preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind. Speak or act with a peaceful mind, and happiness follows like a never-departing shadow. He abused me, attacked me, defeated me, robbed me. For those carrying on like this, hatred does not end. She abused me, attacked me, defeated me, robbed me. For those not carrying on like this, Hatred ends. Hatred never ends through hatred. By non-hate alone does it end. 
this is an ancient truth. This is such an important point to reflect on, not to believe as some absolute truth, but just to reflect on what your own life is showing you. It's so easy, you know, when we're, things are going bad for us, to blame something or someone for our own pain. You know, we have pain. That much we know. We know, maybe, hopefully, we know we're suffering. We know we're in pain. But out of habit, we look outside of ourselves to find the cause for the pain. Or we try to objectify the cause for the pain. It's out there. It's too cold. People don't love me enough. We can even blame ourselves, but in a way we're, we're objectifying it. Like it's out there still, you know, it's that bad habit of mine, those, you know, that genetic makeup that I have. So what we want to see is that uh, we participate, we actively participate in the experience of stress and suffering. That suffering and its cause is right here. And it may feel like uh, it may feel that that's a burden in and of itself, but actually it's real freedom. Because if it's here, then there's something we can do about it. If it's because of the way the world is, or the way my partner is, or the way my genetics are, well, then there's not much we can do about happiness, about peace. But if it's something that the mind or the heart is participating in right now, well, then there's something we can do about it. We actually have a practice, as opposed to the practice of just staying distracted so we don't have to deal with the fact that there's nothing we can do. And the other point that the mind in the way, it and, and also locating suffering and the cause of suffering here in our heart, it really places the responsibility with us. And this idea or this uh, movement towards self-reliance is an essential part of the way the Buddha taught. There's a famous sutta. This is another one of those discourses that so many people of you, so many of you have already heard. From It's called the Kalama Sutta. Kalama was just the name of some of a clan or a, a townspeople in a particular area at the time of the Buddha. And they were confused. And the Buddha, you know, wandered around with some of his monks and some of the nuns. And uh, so he'd go stay someplace for a while and then move on. And he came to the Kalama people. And they had seen other religious or spiritual teachers who impressed them. And so when the Buddha came, they were impressed with the Buddha, and they asked the Buddha afterward, after the Buddha spoke, um, you know, who should we follow? Who should, you know, what teaching should we follow? Because we hear this, and that sounds really good, and another person, and now you. And this is what the Buddha said to them to help them with their confusion. He said, you should decide not by what you've heard, not by following convention, not by assuming it is so, not by relying on texts, not because of reasoning, not because of logic, not because, not by thinking about explanations, not by acquiesce, uh, acqui, 
acquiescing to the views that you prefer, not because it appears likely, and certainly not out of respect for a teacher. When you would know for yourselves that these things are unhealthy, these things, when entered upon and undertaken, incline toward harm and suffering, then you should reject them. But when you know for yourselves that these things are healthy, these things, when entered upon and undertaken, incline toward welfare and happiness, <coughs> then having come to them, you should stay with them. So there's this self-reliance and this very pragmatic attitude. Sometimes in Buddhist practice we call it skillful means. So we don't take anything as an absolute. But just like medicine, it's just a question of the effect that it has and really getting a sense of what effect the particular practices have on our heart. Are they leading us in a wholesome, useful direction or an unwholesome, unuseful direction? And what might have worked or been useful in the past may at some point not be so useful. Or what wasn't useful may be useful. So it's really, you know, we might prefer to have a, you know, omnipotent, omniscient, you know, teacher or deity here telling us exactly what to do. But I don't, at least. But what we do have is we have our lives. And we have this capacity to be awake and to notice the effect. So when I sit, I can notice the effect. And when I don't sit every day, I notice the effect. And while I'm sitting, if my mind gets distracted and I indulge in that thought, I can notice the effect. You know, I go to planning. And then I know I'm planning, but I just indulge in it. I don't do anything about it. I just kind of dig in and go with it, right? I'll very directly experience the effect of that, good or bad. And if I do something else like notice the clinging, notice the craving, notice the contraction in my mind and heart, return to the sensations of the body, find the breath, connect, sustain with the breath, something else will happen. There will be a different effect. And I can know that. So in a sense, the whole spiritual path, certainly in this tradition of practice, is about knowing the mind and locating happiness and suffering here in the heart and mind and not being so seduced or distracted by the content or activity of our lives. It's not that we're withdrawing from life, but we're understanding that it's much more important how the heart relates or understands to the conditions than the particular conditions of the moment. So if we're feeling really overwhelmed by life, we could go out and try to change the world. And sometimes, of course, that's the appropriate response. But even if that's the appropriate response to go try to change the world, still we should make effort to change the way that we're relating to the conditions so that they're not the cause for suffering and stress. Because we know that that's possible. Like a couple of days ago, I had a, a short bout of the flu. I had just a lot of nausea and diarrhea and achy joints and just for you know 48 hours or so. And it's so easy to react to that experience. 
and to uh, see those, know those conditions, react and create a drama. Like, I'm too busy to be sick, for example. Or how many other variations of that drama that we can come up with is not fair. And all that is, that reaction is just more suffering. But there's another possibility, which is to have that experience of being sick, which is the way that it is when it's that way, and just let it in. Let that be what it is without adding anything to it. And there's a real relief to just being sick. It's not pleasant to be sick. But there's a relief in not having a problem with being sick or not having a problem with the unpleasantness of being sick. It's actual, actually freedom. There is freedom. It's the same thing with being busy or whatever you feel burdened by. Some of you are mothers of young children, fathers of young children. It's so easy, I'm sure, I'm imagining at least, to at times feel burdened by that experience. Or maybe you have a troublesome relationship with somebody, or a troublesome job, or have trouble with what's going on in the country. And we look, because our minds are so good at discriminating, we look and we actually can see things that are bad, like the kid shouldn't be doing that, or my partner shouldn't be doing that, or my friend shouldn't be doing that, or the government shouldn't be doing that. So it's not that we, you know, it, it's very clear that there are problems out there in the world. But what do we do with those problems? We create stress and suffering. And that's where the freedom, that's where there's a possibility of freedom. So at the beginning of this book, Ajahn Sumedho, I think rightly so, addresses the question of freedom. Or, you know, why spiritual life? Or religious life? And he talks about how in all spiritual traditions, all religious traditions, they're all based or they're all focused on somehow a human being realizing the end of this conditioned experience. You know, as a typical human being, we feel trapped, right? With our minds, with our conditions, with birth and death, with the mystery not knowing. We feel burdened by that. And so spiritual awakening, whether you're a Christian or a Jew or a Muslim or a Buddhist or a Hindu or whatever you might be, somehow we resolve the experience of being a conditioned being. You know, we open to something beyond birth and death, you know, being an animal who is born, struggles, and dies. Right? Doesn't that sort of sum up the religious teachings, that somehow there's something beyond that? So in Buddhism, we call that nibbana or enlightenment or awakening. So sometimes we refer 
to this practice as Buddhist mindfulness practice or the path of awareness or the path of awakening. So what we mean by that is that to some degree, you know, we have some confidence that the experience of being a human being as a problem, like I have a problem with birth and death, I have a problem that, you know, I can't control my life, I have a problem that I don't understand what the meaning of it all is. So in Buddhist terminology, we say we can awaken from that experience of feeling burdened with human existence, feeling weighed down by it, weighed down by whatever aspect of it you feel weighed down by in any particular moment, that there's a way to awaken so that what now appears to be a problem doesn't appear to be a problem. So we call that nibbana or awakening. And one way it's described is that uh, what we wake up to is a way of being or participating in the moment when the mind or when the heart isn't obscured by the filter, the, the habit of greed, anger, and delusion. So you can just, you know, use your imagination and just sort of imagine participating in the moment, being here in your life, not a different life, in your body and mind, in your situation, but with a heart and mind free of greed, anger, delusion. So we're not projecting any self-centered fear, aversion, any self-centered greediness or craving or confusion. So this awakening, you know, as opposed to the way it's talked about in other religious spiritual traditions, and usually I think the way it's talked about isn't meant to be an absolute truth. It's probably more likely meant to be a metaphor. But in the traditional teachings of the Buddha from the Pali Canon, these are the oldest recorded versions of the Buddha's discourses, um, it's very psychological. I mean, he's really pointing to an experience here in the heart, not something we go out to get, like to heaven or to someplace outside. The experience, it's a transformation of our understanding, our view. That's really, the problem is our ignorance or our misperceiving how it is. So then the resolution to that problem is to see clearly. And so in that sense, it's very simple. It's simple in the sense that we don't need any special experience or any special circumstance to awaken. So here are a few words from Ajahn Chah that is uh, in the beginning in the preface of the book that I'm talking or using. So Ajahn Chah was Ajahn Sumedho's Thai teacher. He's a famous Thai Buddhist teacher, Buddhist monk and teacher. And Ajahn Chah said, the Buddha is to be found right in the most simple things in front of you. If you're willing to look, if you're willing to look, 
<coughs> and the essence of this is finding the balance which doesn't hold and which doesn't push away. Right? So the Buddha, the freedom, it's right in front of us. It's always right in front of us when there's a balance in the heart or a balance in the mind. So a mind that's not pushing or pulling. A mind that's not trying to get anything out of the moment. Right then and there is the freedom. And then another quote from Ajahn Chah, he says, Speak simply. Work simply. Simplify everything you do so you will be able to see clearly. <coughs> if you arrive at wisdom, it will be because you've learned to understand your own body and mind. To know the world means to understand the body and mind, process the body-mind processes, and vice versa. If you don't know yourself, you don't know the world. If you don't understand the nature of the world, then you don't understand yourself. I find this so reassuring because I'm sure it's true for you too. The world seems so complicated. And especially these days, because of the internet, because we uh, have at our fingertips the ancient teachings of every single culture, all the good and all the bad, you know, thoughts and teachings are all there. And we can be quite, I can be quite confused, you know, uh, excited about, you know, oh, I gotta, I gotta do this, I have to read that, I want to talk. And it can be overwhelming, you know, and we always doubt, like, do I have, do I have enough? And we can keep putting off practice. And so it's so nice to be reminded that all we need is this moment. And any moment will do. And it's really a matter of finding the heart-mind in balance. Discovering the mind and heart in balance. A mind that is not withdrawing or defending itself from the moment in any way. And the mind that's not trying to get anything out of the moment in any way. So now that's not so easy. It's simple, but it's not easy. Because we're so much in the habit of defending ourselves in, in various ways in the moment. Like even if it's a little cool for you right now, then maybe unconsciously you're defending yourself from the coolness. Or maybe if what I'm saying is a little provocative or disturbing for you, you might be in some way, even if you're not aware of it consciously, defending yourself or protecting yourself. Or if you really like what I'm saying, you might be sort of leaning in, like trying to hold on to it. So we're always pushing and pulling. So the, the quality of attention has to become so refined so we notice the very subtle pushing and pulling going on. And just the scene of it is the cause for letting go of it, for the purification of the heart or the mind, the mind that doesn't push and pull. And it's nice to always talk about dramatic situations because then it's obvious. You know, if somebody walks into the room where we are who we find repulsive, well, we know exactly how we just distance ourselves. And even if we can't distance ourselves, the person sits down next to us in the bus, Psychologically, we distance ourselves. You know, we put up barriers. Or that the person we love to be around sits down next to us. 
it's like even if we're not kind of kind of hold the person, but psychologically it's like we're really there. We're really you know relishing, delighting, indulging, wanting it to last forever, trying to feed, trying to get something from that time we have with this person who we love so much, adore, want to be around forever. So it's our you know it's our reactivity to conditions that disturbs the mind. It's the disturbance in the mind that keeps us from participating in what in Theravada Buddhism is called the deathless. The deathless is a, a word, another word, another synonym for uh, nibbana or nirvana. Nibbana literally means the extinction. So the extinction of suffering or the extinction of ignorance. Right? When that goes away, when that goes out, then there's freedom. The freedom of non-clinging. The mind or heart that doesn't cling to anything, doesn't push or pull. So in Buddhist practice or in the Dharma, Dhamma, we begin with something not idealistic, but something very practical and straightforward, like the experience of feeling the burden or the weight of pushing and pulling. That really grounds us into the place that you can call, uh, they use this word, I forget exactly what it is now in Pali, but the way it's often translated is working ground. It's like, where do we do our practice? Where do we work? You know, we work right here in the present moment in the heart. And so the working ground for most of us most of the time is the experience of suffering or stress. It may not be sort of terrific crisis kind of suffering, you know, like we find out our loved one has cancer. Or, but just the very ordinary feeling of the heart being discontent, being anxious, being fearful, wanting things to work out. Just the ordinary stress of our heart or the ordinary feeling of being burdened in the heart. That's our working ground. So this is where we dig in. This is what we begin by saying, this is relevant. This is kind of my, this is my temple. This is my Bible, you know, my Pali canon. This is great in the Buddhist tradition, the word Dhamma in Sanskrit, it's dharma, so sometimes you hear dharma, like a dharma center means a center devoted to the teachings of the Buddha. And in, in Pali, which is a related language to Sanskrit, it's dhamma. So the words are very similar, just different languages from around the time of the Buddha. And uh, the later traditions of Buddhism keep the teachings in Sanskrit, like Tibetan Buddhism and Zen Buddhism. They often use the Sanskrit words, and a lot of the Hindu traditions, of course, they're teachings are also in Sanskrit. But the, the Theravada Buddhist tradition keeps the teachings in the Pali language. So there's some slight differences. Like the difference between karma, which is Sanskrit, and kama, which is in Pali, and dhamma and dharma. Some of the words are exactly the same, but most of them are slightly different. So dhamma or dharma is an interesting word because it, may, it refers both to the teachings of the Buddha, but it also refers to things as they are. 
the way it is. So I like that because the teachings of the Buddha are concepts that point the mind toward the experience of Dhamma. So Dharma and or Dhamma means both teachings that turn the mind toward the experience of things as they are, and Dharma or Dhamma also means that experience, the seeing without confusion. We see into the moment, we see Dhamma. And Dhamma, the way it is, is usually characterized by change. You know, we talk about when we see any experience and we're not confused by our interpretation or concepts, normally what we notice behind any experience or right in the middle of any experience is the experience of change, that it's ungraspable, insubstantial, not dependable. And in that sense, it's stressful because we can't make it. We can't keep it away if it's unpleasant, and we can't hold on to it if it's pleasant. And it's impersonal meaning that it's conditional. It comes and goes through the causes and conditions. This is true with even things like our thoughts, let alone the weather or politics. You know, that comes and goes. It's not dependable. And it's not self. It's not something I can control, I can govern. And it's the same with our thoughts and our emotions and our sensations. It's all, in a a sense, it's all nature. And nature in the sense that nature comes and goes due to causes and conditions. It's lawful. But as human beings, you know, who grow up studying biology, we think of nature out there. Isn't that strange? How often do we think of nature that we are not just participating in nature, but absolutely every aspect of our existence is an expression of nature, including our thoughts. That's as much nature, including our messes. Right? Our nuclear power plants, that's nature. <laughs> Isn't it funny how we, we've been conditioned to somehow, we think of Prairie Island, you know, down there, and we go, oh, that's disturbing nature. But it is nature. It may not be the part of nature we like, but it's nature. It's as much of nature as a breeze, or a leaf falling off of a tree in the fall, or a deer scampering down the street. You know, it's all nature, it's all causes and conditions unfolding. And this is the, this is the uh, qualities of Dhamma, the way it is. When we cut through our concepts of the way we've been conditioned, then we just start to see change. It's just flow, it's flux. It's not dependable, it's uh, not governable. And in that sense, it's a little bit disturbing. Everything's disturbing because of its changing nature. And it's impersonal because it comes and goes due to innumerable causes and conditions. And nobody, there is no self who is in charge of all this change. So it's impersonal. It can't be claimed. And that's true with any object. Anything that can be known is Dhamma. So this is our working ground. And where does Dhamma exist? It can only exist one place right here in the present moment, right? This is Dhamma, right here. And where is this present moment? It's, it's the same as our heart, right? Where do you experience the present moment? Now, we can think it's out there because I'm seeing you out there and I'm hearing the sounds out there and I think about something and I have a sense that it's out there. But actually, 
the whole experience of the present moment is right here in the mind and heart. It's always right here. Our whole world is always right here. This is our working ground. The experience of the present moment. And, and the real uh, essence of this experience in the present moment, and this is why it takes hard work, it takes real devotion, is that in this experience of the present moment, and as I'm talking, you might as well just notice your experience of the present moment, the sounds and thoughts and sensations right here in your heart, being known right here in the space of the present moment in the heart. We're, we're usually very intoxicated in the activity right here in the heart. You know, what's being seen, what's being thought, what's being felt in the body, the emotions that come and go. But there's something else that's happening here that's more subtle, less easy to see, that's really important, which is how we're relating to the activity. So there is this activity going on, and then there's some view we have about that activity, good activity, bad activity. So this is really where our practice goes, to this place of how we relate, how we see, how we understand the activity. Do we understand the activity in the present moment as Dhamma, change, insubstantial, not dependable, conditional, not personal? Or do we understand the experience of the present moment as this is who I am, this is me, this is permanent, this isn't a joke, <laughs> I want this, I don't want that. So it's very different. And that's the difference between seeing the moment, living our life as a conventional human being, and practicing to be free, cultivating freedom, coming into alignment with a truth that's beyond our conventions, beyond our conditioned way of thinking, way of understanding. And this is what we call Nibbana, moving in this direction, in the direction where ignorance or misperceiving is extinguished, is put aside, at least in a moment, you know, and then we have a moment of freedom, and then we get confused again. But then that sort of inspires us that maybe, maybe this is a, a useful working ground a place to devote myself to. Instead of devoting myself to other things, we can devote ourselves to understanding the heart and how freedom can arise right here in this moment and how suffering or dukkha can arise right here in this moment. And it's very interesting what happens then is we start having slowly a different relationship with all the conditions that could ever arise. It could be like despicable thoughts, or it could be really sublime things like a nice sunset, or a good hug from our friend, or a great thought. All of those objects, they're all objects, right, in the sense of their conditioned experiences, there's things that can be known. We start having a, a different relationship. We're no longer obsessed with turning things into good or bad. So when we see something or experience something, we're not turning, oh, that's a beautiful sunset, so that's good. 
that's a despicable thought or, or painful memory and that's bad. You know, she's good. He's bad. So that's how we are now because we're living in our conventional way without without any sort of, it doesn't seem like we're working at it, but we are. We are constantly turning everything, every experience into good, bad, or it doesn't matter. So the doesn't matter are all those things that aren't strongly good or bad, so we just don't pay attention to them. Like your shirt is touching your skin right now. You can feel the sensations of your shirt touching your skin, but probably it doesn't rise to the level where you've come to a conclusion that that's good or that that's bad. But the air touching your skin, maybe that, you know, it's cool enough that, that you've come to the conclusion that the temperature in this room is bad. <laughs> or maybe you're having a hot flash and you've come to the conclusion that the temperature in this room is good because <laughs> uh, it feels cool. So this is... Uh, this is how we want to move. We want to cultivate practice. We want medicine to help us move from a conventional way of seeing to this other way of seeing. And what's our medicine? Well, the medicine might be like reflecting on these teachings like I'm talking about tonight. Or the medicine, maybe more directly, is actually sitting down. There's a Ajahn Chah has this great simile where he talks about somebody who's got a terrible ailment, illness, and sees a really good doctor, and the doctor, she gives him good medicine, and the guy takes the medicine home, you know, and three times a day he takes the medicine and he looks at it, he's so happy to have this medicine, he reads the label, you know, knows how much he's supposed to take, and keeps it in a very safe spot, but he never takes the medicine. <laughs> And this is how it often is, at least to some degree, for most of us in terms of these practices. It's like you could hear a talk like this or read a good book or hear, you know, or just reflect on what you know about these teachings. And you can feel, we can feel quite inspired. This makes sense. It makes sense that I'm participating in suffering. It makes sense that how I relate has a lot to do with whether there's suffering or not. But do we actually practice? I mean, are we willing to practice? Even if we don't quite understand what practice means. But it's in a sense, it's like doing something about it, taking action. That's what meditation practice is. We're formally taking action to undo what needs to be undone sort of decondition ourselves. So our, our conditioning is to constantly react to whatever's happening in the moment. So meditation practice is to be intimate, fully intimate, present, and practice not reacting. So what's the opposite of not reacting? Just being intimate. That's it. It's like just being intimate is the opposite of reacting. Reacting is means we're not intimate. So just being present, it's so simple. But how many of us regularly practice just being intimate? And even all of us who sit regularly, how much of that time when we're sitting are we really practicing just being open, just being intimate, being receptive to the body and mind? 
and how much of the time are we actually in a subtle or not so subtle way trying to control our experience like quiet the mind down now that may be good to quiet the mind down but it's not this practice it may help you with this practice but ultimately this practice is about just being open not reacting not trying to control how it is there are things that really support it so it's not, I'm not saying that we shouldn't do the things that support it it could be really supportive to take a nice walk you know it can be really supportive to think about your problems sometimes or to talk about with a friend there are a lot of things that are relatively wholesome but what we want to include is this uh, most profound kind of medicine which is you know you could call it mindfulness usually that's just what we call it here open awareness non-judging non-interfering awareness radical acceptance you know you could probably come up we could in this room you know with the 25 of us we could probably generate you know 300 words or phrases that we could easily use to describe this practice but see this is part of the issue you know we know sort of where it is kind of or what it is kind of but are we willing to just set up a way to train or to practice on an, in an ongoing way this is ajahn somedo's definition of mindfulness practice what we mean by mindfulness is the ability not to not attach to any object right anything that is known so an object is just anything that can be known not to attach to any object either in the material realm or the mental realm when there is no attachment the mind is in its pure state of awareness intelligence and clarity that is mindfulness the mind is pure and receptive sensitive to the existing conditions it is no longer a conditioned mind that just reacts to pleasure and pain praise and blame happiness and suffering and then he gives an example of anger he says if you get angry right now you can follow the anger you can believe it and go on and on creating that particular emotion or you can suppress the anger and try to stop it out of fear or aversion and so this is the buddha often talked about the middle way and this is our tendency so we're like even for those of us who know better you know and we're practicing meditation we still do this we get angry and then we either indulge in the anger you know and think about it and plan out our plot out our revenge you know or we try to get rid of it you know i'm a meditator i'm a buddhist i'm a nice person i shouldn't be angry you know and we try to repress it suppress it in some way so so this practice is neither it's the middle way it's not about indulging and it's not about suppressing and he goes on to say however instead of doing either you can reflect on the anger as something observable right you can be mindful now if anger were our true self we wouldn't be able to observe it this is what i mean by reflection 
he uses the word reflection a lot for mindfulness, as we use for mindfulness. Now that's sort of an interesting idea, isn't it? That can, if we're really angry, then I'm angry, so I can't observe it. But if we can really open to the experience of being angry, something radically arises. We start to see, if we fully open to the experience of being angry, we see that I am not this anger. This is not me. This is not mine. Because if it were mine, me, I, I wouldn't be able to observe it in this open, non-interfering, non-judging way. This is a profound thing to notice when you open to experience. The recognition of not me, not mine, comes with any moment of mindfulness. It's part of that experience of being open or mindful. So I'll just finish reading what he says. So I ended with, um, now if anger were our true self, we wouldn't be able to observe it. This is what I mean by reflection. What is it that can observe and reflect on the feeling of anger? What is it that can watch and investigate the feeling, the heat in the body or the mental state? That which observes and investigates is what we call a reflective mind. The human mind is a reflective mind. (coughs) So some of you know, maybe you're turned off by the ritual in Buddhism of taking refuge in the Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, because it may strike you that here we are, talk about self-reliance, and yet we're taking refuge in some guy who's lived 2,500 years ago, and why why would we do that? But when we take refuge in Buddha, we're taking refuge in the reflective mind, or the space of awareness. That's Buddha. Buddha is the one who knows, not the historic guy, who lived 2,500 years ago, but right now, there's a quality of the mind that knows, that's reflective, or like a mirror. This aspect of the mind can't be known. If it can be known, then that's just an object that's being known. Known by what? And if you you, uh, reflect on the qualities of knowing, you're reflecting on Buddha. What are the qualities of knowing? Not what's known, but knowing. It's like reflecting on the qualities of the space of this room. So just do that. That may be a little bit more concrete. You know, if we reflect on the qualities of the space in this room, well, we can see what's in the space. Notice how the mind gets quiet when you reflect on the space of this room. And it's the same thing when we reflect on the Buddha, the one that knows, the one who knows. So this is what we realize in practice. And it changes our relationship. The more we realize the Buddha, the more our relationship to conditioned things, things that are known, like what is in the space of the room, it changes. It's less charged. We don't take it as me or mine. Now, don't believe me. Really check it out for yourself. Do the practice and see if how you start to relate to things in your life begins to change. The mind, maybe the mind becomes less fixated, less attached, less fearful, less needy, 
Or maybe it becomes more needy, more fearful. So we can check back with each other next week. But I want to take some time now uh, to let people share from their own practice or any questions that you have about what I've said tonight or anything that comes to mind. is in your direct experience. And uh, it's so easy on the level of ideas to, to think of that as absurd. You know, th- that idea that it's all here in the heart. But even a, as an intellectual exercise, you can begin to at least appreciate that our conventional view is just a conventional view which is like there is, you know, a sun out there and there are six billion people on this planet. Well, those, of course, are just ideas in the mind right now. And if we actually go around counting, each moment is just the, that moment of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking. So what do we mean when we say world? What do we mean when we say sun? Do we mean brightness, heat? You know? See, we, we're constantly projecting things. Now, the Buddha never denied the external reality. He just said he didn't want to get involved in philosophical things that have no relevance to the experience of suffering. He wanted to address the fact there are human beings, right? There is this existence here that we know. And within this existence here, there is the experience of suffering and happiness. And he really stayed there not whether there are actually six billion people on this planet or not. What we do know is there's a thought here and now in this moment and this mind that there are six billion people, you know, and there are about 25 in this room, (laughs) right? Because I see 25 forms, you know, certain colors and shapes, which I identify as forms. But these are all visual experiences and concepts, thoughts, here in my mind right now. And, and to really leave it at that level, the psychological level, spiritual level of an individual heart. And if we can, if we dig in there, what we find is that our way of being in the world is skillful. So we do some good for the, this world, whatever it might be. <laughs> you know, a real planet with six billion people on it or just a thought in my mind. Who knows? I 
I do know there are places in practice where that becomes vividly clear, though, that uh, that you, we cut through the projection of external reality, and and it, it's not like we're not aware of external reality, but it's much more apparent in certain places in practice. It's much more apparent that that's just, it's like uh, all these thoughts, like there's a world out there and there's a sun and da 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 da, that it's like a movie or a, something that's projected in the mind. It's just a flash. See, but now when I think about common ground, this building, the, the habit of uh, sort of thinking of it as the real building here is very strong and it's and it, it seductive. So my so I miss that that experience of seeing that that's just a thought in the mind. We have to have be pretty sensitive, pretty quiet to see that primarily that's a thought in the mind. And with that thought, if I allow myself to get indulge in that thought, then it becomes like a reality, like in a movie theater, you know. You can, you can really work, especially if you ask them to turn the lights up a little bit, you can really work at not forgetting you're in a movie theater. No, this is the movie. This is just the movie. But then if you relax your attention, you know, and you indulge in the story, you can forget you're in a movie theater. And that's, that's a similar kind of dynamic. Selena? Well, it depends on the attitude of the person or the intention of the person. Like, you could imagine that, uh, you know, just maybe some examples from my own life, because, you know, I'll watch movies or I'll go do things that, and sometimes when I do it, I, it's it's 
you know, a greed, like I, I need that, I want that. But sometimes it's more like just being sensitive to the energy level and maybe the heart's gotten a little too um, serious and, and kind of caught up and it needs some medicine. And the medicine might be a funny movie that sort of loosens things up. You know, I'm getting too serious about this, glum about the world or whatever. You, you just use this as medicine. Or a vacation can be the same way, you know, where you're getting kind of to really do a vacation you have to let go of whatever it is you don't do, you do when you're not on vacation yeah and that that could be good medicine at times but a vacation can also be an obsession or a very strong kind of greed you know I need this and and a lot of comparing you know or competition with your friends you know well you went to Mexico or I went to Fiji you know and sort of one up and ship so it really depends on where it's coming from. But uh, developing freedom doesn't, isn't the same as withdrawing from the world or, or not feeding the body or not uh, taking care of the mind. So we are conditioned beings. We do have a personality. And that doesn't disappear with freedom. And on the path itself, we have to keep the mind balanced. And keeping the mind balanced depends on certain conditions. And even at the time of the Buddha, you know, some people who started to practice with the Buddha came from very, like, poor backgrounds. They didn't have much. Other people came from very refined backgrounds. They were princes and, you know, um, princesses from, you know, royal families, and they decided to become monks and nuns. And so what they needed for the mind to be balanced was different. And that's the same with us. You know, we might be conditioned that if we're in a really difficult or kind of simple living situation, we don't, we don't feel safe. And the mind just gets in a fearful state and we can't practice opening. So maybe being in a more pleasant circumstance might make it easier for a practice. For other people, they can be in a very simple place and it's better for them. Because if they get in a more comfortable place, they might start getting attached, you know. So it's just it's just about medicine and what what works brings the mind in, into balance. Bonnie, I have a question about your um, talk tonight regarding taking refuge in the Buddha. Um, my experience in taking refuge in the Buddha, what I think about when I do that is I do think about this man 2,500 years ago did this phenomenal thing and how grateful I am that it's taught in such a way that it has come to me 2,500 years later but from what I hear you say tonight it sounds like taking refuge in the Buddha should be much more of a personal Yeah, I also take refuge in that guy 2,500 years ago <laughs> who was a really good teacher, you know, and that his teachings are still really potent even today. You know, it's amazing that they're not dated. Uh, it's, uh, to me, it's, it's a bit astounding how well, how him knowing his mind, heart, as he did back then, is still relevant to our hearts and minds today, or at least mine. 
So I do take refuge in that person, but I, I understand the limitations and that what's really relevant is what he's pointing to, not the guy who's pointing. It's relevant there's a guy pointing, you know, and all the men and women who sort of discovered, sort of did the practice and, and realized something themselves and then did some pointing the, on their own and on and on through the generations. Yeah, I think it's appropriate to reflect on that because it inspires us, doesn't it? I mean, it inspires me. I get revved up thinking about all those men and women who've done this practice. They can do it. Maybe I can do it. And uh, just feeling grateful uh, for my teachers and their teachers and their teacher teachers and on and on. That really brings up some energy and inspires me to practice. But the, but the deepest refuge is here. And those refuges, we don't want to get stuck there because we can get stuck there. But our, but on the other hand, we don't want to not do it for fear of getting stuck if there's a lot of juice. So if we can get some juice, some energy by reflecting on them, then we should. And some people are more devotional than others. I, I'm a devotional type, so for me it works. Other people who aren't so devotional don't feel like you should do that. For you, the ideas might give you juice. Then reflect on the ideas more. Now, the ideas aren't the answer either. It's the real experience itself. But that experience is so, for most of us, most of the time, you know, it's not accessible. So it's a hard refuge. But we want to keep moving in that direction. Because if we don't look, we don't find it. That's really the essence of this talk tonight. That if we don't do that practice here in the heart, we don't find what can be found. And then we're just stuck with uh, our devotion to a really good person, which is nice. It's relatively wholesome, but it doesn't actually transform our experience or our heart too much. But it's better than being you know, devoted to getting a new car <laughs> or something else. And I think we have to leave it here. So let's just take a, a breath or two together. can recall our deepest aspiration or just reflect on what seems to us to be a wholesome aspiration for our lives. Take care of our life, our heart, in the deepest possible way and to also take care of other people in the deepest possible way. And we don't even need to fully understand what that means or what that might be. But just that we aspire to be deeply happy and free and to live in a way that supports the happiness and freedom of all beings. Why not invest in this deep, good aspiration? May all beings be free from suffering. Thanks again for coming, everyone. Have a good week of practice. Hope to see you soon. And I have just a couple of announcements. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.